Section 18 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Simon Parra. Chapter 5. National Opposition to Rome in Germany by A.F. Pollard. Part 2. Of all the disorderly elements in the German Empire, the most dangerous was the Ritterschaft, a class whose characteristics are not adequately denoted by the nearest English equivalent, knights. Their bearing towards the government and towards the other estates of the realm recalls that of the English baronage under Stephen and Henry II, and another parallel to their position may be found in the Polish nobles or the gentlemen, whose success in reducing the other elective monarchy in Europe to anarchy would probably have been repeated by the German Ritterschaft, but for the restraining force of the territorial princes. Like the English barons and the Polish nobles, they recognize no superior but their monarch, enjoy no occupation so much as private war, and resisted every attempt to establish orderly government. They had special grievances in the early part of the 16th century. The development of commerce was accompanied by a corresponding agricultural depression, and while wealth in the towns increased and price rose, the return from rents and services remained stationary unless they were exploited on commercial principles. In France and in England, under strong monarchies, the lords of the land saved their financial position by sheep farming, enclosures, and other business-like pursuits. But in Germany, pride or inadaptability or special facilities for private war kept the knights from resorting to such expedients, and their main support was wholesale brigandage. They took to robbery as to a trade and considered it rather an honor to be likened to wolves. Like wolves, however, they were generally hungry. The organization of territorial states and the better preservation of peace had, moreover, rendered their trade at once more dangerous and unprofitable, and in 1522 there were knights who lived in the peasant's cottage and possessed income of no more than 14 crowns a year. To their poverty, fresh burdens were added by the reforms of the national government. The prohibition of private war, the supersession of their ancient feudal customs by the newly received Roman law, the constant pressure of their powerful neighbors, the princes, drove them into a position of chronic discontent, and, in the summer of 1522, the knights of the Middle and Upper Rhine provinces assembled at Landau, and resolved to repudiate the authority of the Reichskammergericht on the grounds that it was dominated by the influence of their natural foes, the princes. They found a leader in the notorious Franz von Sickingen, who had been regarded both as the champion of the poorer classes and as a gospel pioneer. Probably his motives were mainly personal, and he adopted the cause of his fellow knights only because that role suited his private purposes. 
Charles V had taken him into his service and employed him in the war with France, but Sickingen's success and rewards had not been commensurate with his hopes, and he sought other means to satisfy the extravagant ambition of becoming elector of Trier or even a king. A decent cloak for his private ends and for the class interests of the knights was found in the religious situation. Sickingen was apparently a genuine Lutheran. Busser lived in his castle, the Ebernburg. Oako Lampadius preached to his followers, and four hundred knights had undertaken Luther's defense at the Diet of Worms. The reformer was grateful and addressed Sickingen as his especial lord and patron. He looked to the Ritter as a sword of the gospel and openly incited them to rise and spoil the unregenerate priests and prelates while Houten, whose sympathies were naturally on the knightly side, urged Sikingen to emulate Ziska, and endeavored to enlist the towns in the service of the opposition to their common foe, the territorial princes. Some of these princes were, however, already half Lutherians. The elector of Saxony was Luther's great patron. The elector Palatine was full of doubts and in any case was no friend to the bishops, and prudence forbade open war in the ranks of the reformers. An ingenious method of avoiding it, and of combining secular and religious interests under Sickingen's banner, was found in the proposal to limit the attack to the ecclesiastical princes, whose worldly goods were an offense to the Lutheran divines, whose jurisdiction was a perpetual grievance to the cities and whose territorial powers infringed nightly liberties. And so, when in August 1522, Sikingen revived his feud with the Archbishop-Elector of Trier and entered his territory at the head of an army which he had levied nominally for the emperor's service, he had some hopes of success. The government put him under the ban of the empire, but Sigingen laughed at the threats and proceeded to carry on the controversy with fire and sword. Unfortunately, these arguments were double-edged, and Trier, to which he laid siege, offered an unexpected resistance. The archbishop himself evinced a martial valor at least equal to his spiritual zeal, and the knightly emissaries met with no response to their appeals from the people of the city. The traders had suffered too much from the wolves outside to wish to see them even though they came in sheep's clothing and camped within their walls. The allies, whom Sikingen expected from Franconia, were intercepted and on September 14 he was forced to raise the siege and to retreat to his stronghold at Lansthul. Here he thought himself secure against any attack but his elaborate fortifications were not proof against the new and powerful artillery which the princes brought into the field. In April 1523, his walls crumbled before it. He was himself mortally wounded by a splinter of stone and died soon after his surrender. He was the last of the German Ritter, and the cannon which battered his castle were symbolical of the forces which proved fatal to the independence of his class. This victory over one of the most formidable disruptive forces in the empire might have been expected to strengthen the national government, but it was won in spite of, and not by, the Reichsregiment.
that body had been unable to keep the peace even in the immediate vicinity of Nuremberg, where it sat, and whether its members came in disguise to avoid molestation at the end of nightly robbers. Still less could it cope with a force like that at Sekingen's disposal, and the rebellion had been put down by three princes, the Elector Palatine, the Archbishop of Trier, and the young Landgrave Philip of Hesse, who had acted on their own responsibility and in conjunction with the Swabian League, an organization embodying within itself prelates, princes, lesser nobility, and towns, but working in its external relations for the furtherance of the particularist interests of the House of Austria. This alliance had early in the course of the revolt taken matters into its own hands and treated the government with as much contempt as Sickingen had done himself. As a natural result, the Reichsregiment began to incline to the knightly side, and Frederick of Saxony came to an agreement with the rebels. Neither event had any effect upon the result of the struggle. After the fall of Landshul, the three princes and the Swabian League proceeded to crush the Franconian knights. This was done with little difficulty. Their power was broken forever, and Ulrich von Houten fled to Switzerland, where he died soon afterwards in the midst of a controversy with his former friend Erasmus. The victors then punished the offenders and divided their spoils without the least reference to the wishes or commands of the government, and the main result of the episode was to exhibit in startling contrast the importance of the Reichsregiment and the vigor of the territorial power of individual princes. The regiment was visibly tottering to its fall, and in January 1524, it met the Diet for the last time at Nuremberg. Friedrich of Saxony came prepared with a sheaf of reforms, but it was a question of ending and not of mending, and with that determination in their minds, the various sections of the opposition gathered in force. The deputies of the towns had returned from Spain, bringing the emperor's veto on the one practicable mean of financing the administration. Charles's counselor, Franz Hanart, followed to fan the discontent. The wealth of Germany was ranged against the government, which had endeavored to abolish monopolies, to tax trade, and to restrict the operations of capital. Duke George of Saxony had already declined to support an authority which had shown itself so powerless to enforce respect for its decrees, and the three princes of the Palatinate, of Trier and of Hesse, had withdrawn their representatives from the Reichsregiment. The Swabian League was encouraged to resist encroachments on its autonomy, and the two main supports of the administration, the electors of Mainz and Saxony, were engaged in personal quarrels. When the Diet opened, one after another of the representatives of the vested interests rose to denounce the government, and a practical vote of censure was carried by the refusal of the Diet to consider any scheme for raising revenue until the administration was changed. So ended the last attempt to create national government for the medieval German Empire. The Reichsregiment was indeed continued, but it was removed to Esslingen, where it sat under the shadow of Austrian domination, and was shorn of the little independent authority it had wielded before. Germany was submerged under a flood of constitutional chaos, 
and personal rivalry. Ferdinand was plotting against the elector of Saxony. Many princes were alienated from Charles by his failure to pay their pensions, and Francis I was seeking to fish in the troubled waters. The experiment of the Reichsregiment had, in fact, been foredoomed to failure from the first. The government contained within itself the seeds of its own disruption, because its aims had not been single or disinterested. It was an attempt at national unity dominated by particularist interests. The opposition of the towns and of the knights had not been evoked because the government sought national unity, but because it administered the national authority in the interests of the territorial princes. The single city of Nuremberg had, for instance, been taxed higher than any one of the electors. Nor would national unity have been secured if the oligarchy of princes had perpetuated its control of the government, for the individual members would soon have quarreled among themselves. Their dissensions were indeed patent even when their collective authority was threatened by common enemies. Each, wrote Hanart to his master, wanted to have the affairs of the empire regulated according to his individual taste. They all demanded a national government and a national system of judicature, but no one would tolerate the interference of these institutions in his own household and jurisdiction. Everyone, in short, wished to be master himself. In such circumstances, Charles was perhaps justified in preferring, like the rest, the extension of his own territorial power to every other object. He may have perceived the impossibility of founding national unity on a discredited imperial system. Unity did not come through any of the methods suggested by the reforming diets. It only came when the imperial decay, which they tried to check, had run its full course and the emperor's supremacy had succumbed to the principle of territorial monarchy. To the extension of that principle by methods of blood and iron, Germany owes her modern unity as England, France, and Spain owed their unity in the 16th century. It was the most potent political principle then fermenting in Europe, destroying the old that led to the constriction of the new. The failure of the attempt at a political reform involved the ruin of all hopes of a religious settlement which would be either peaceful or national, for the only instrument by which such an object could have been achieved was broken in pieces. Each political organism within the empire was left to work out its own salvation at its own option without the stimulus or control of a central government, and the contrast between the course of the Reformation in Germany and its development in England affords some facilities for comparing the relative advantage and disadvantage of a strong national monarchy. In Germany, at all events, there can be no pretense that the whole movement was due to the arbitrary caprice of an absolute king. To whatever extent it may have had its roots in the baser passions of mankind, it was at least a popular manifestation. It came from below and not from above. Charles V was hostile from conviction and from the exigencies of his personal position. The ecclesiastical princes were hostile from interest, if not from conviction. Of the temporal princes, only one could be described as friendly, 
and even Frederick of Saxony was not yet a Lutheran. He was still treasuring a collection of relics, and he had spoken severely of Luther's Babylonish captivity. His attitude towards all religious movements, however extravagant, was rather that of Gamaliel, on whose advice to the Sanderim he seemed to have modeled his action. If they were of men, they would come to naught of themselves, and rather than be found fighting against God, he would take his staff in his hand and quit his dominions forever. But whatever animosity the authorities may have entertained against the movement was neutralized by their impotence. The Edict of Worms left nothing to be desired in the comprehensiveness of its condemnations or in the severity of its penalties, and the Roman hierarchy was particularly gratified by the subjection of the press to rigid censorship and by the relegation of its exercise to the Church. But while the Edict had been sanctioned by the National Diet, its execution depended entirely upon local authorities, who were reluctant to enforce it in face of the almost universal disapproval. The primate himself, the Archbishop of Mainz, for fear of riots, refused his clergy license even to preach against the outlawed monk. And at Constance, for instance, not only was the publication of the edict refused, but the imperial commissioners who came to secure its execution were driven out of the city with threats. Both the edict of Charles and the bowl of Leo remained dead letters in Germany outside the private domains of the house of Habsburgs and the chief effect of the campaign of the allied pope, emperor, and king of England against Luther was a bonfire of the heretics' works in London and another at Ghent. The censorship of the press was never more ludicrously ineffective to stop a revolution. In spite of it, the number of books issued from German printing presses in 1523 was more than 12 times as great as the number issued 10 years before, and of these, four-fifths were devoted to the cause of the Reformation. It was only with great difficulty that printers could be induced to publish works in defense of the Catholic Church, and they had often to be repaid for the loss of which the limited circulation of such books involved them. On the other hand, Luther's own writings, violent satires like the Karstans and New Karstans and Hans Sach, Wittenbergische, Nachtingal enjoyed an immense popularity. The effervescence of the national mind evoked a literature vigorous but rude in forms and coarse in expression the common burden of which was invective against the church and especially the monastic orders, and this indigenous literature stirred to passion the mass of the lower middle classes, which the alien and esoteric ideals of the humanists had failed to touch. The pencil was scarcely less effective than the pen. Albrecht Durer and Lucas Cranach were almost as zealous champions of the new ideas as Luther and Houghton, and probably few pictures have had a greater popular influence than Durer's portrayal of St. John taking precedence of St. Peter and of St. Paul as the protector of the gospel. An English nobleman traveling in Germany in 1523 was amazed by the number of abominable pictures ridiculing the friars, 
though he sent to his king some similar specimens satirizing Murner, on whom Henry had bestowed a hundred pounds for his attack on Luther and for his translation of Henry's own book. The motive of all this literature was as yet practical rather than doctrinal, to erase the abuses of the ecclesiastical organization rather than to establish any fresh dogmatic system and the revolutionary tendencies were strongest in the middle classes which dominated the town life in germany though supported by the knights the reformation was in the main a bourgeois movement it was the religious aspect of the advent of the middle classes they had already emancipated themselves from the medieval feudal system and they had long been fretting against the trammels which the church imposed upon their individual and corporate autonomy clerical immunities from municipal taxation episcopal jurisdiction over otherwise free towns produced a never-ceasing source of irritation to these commercial classes Eberlin of Gurnsburg assertions that the papal curia cost Germany 300,000 crowns a year and that the friars extracted another million were irresistible arguments for the elimination of papal control over the German church and for the dissolution of the friars' orders. This predisposition to attack the church was reinforced by the lingering remnants of the Hussite movement. Some members of that sect had settled on the borders of Silesia and Moravia in the middle of the 15th century, and they are claimed as the founders of the later Bohemian Brethren. Wimpelling and Pirkheimer had remarked that the recrudescence of the Hussite heresy, and Wolfgang Capito declares that in his youth he had often heard his elders read the writings of the Bohemian reformers. Luther's words were not entirely novel accents, but the echoes of half-forgotten sounds repeated with a novel force. So, while the princes held aloof from the movement, it progressed with rapid strides in the cities. At Nuremberg, under the eyes of the national government, the churches of St. Lawrence and St. Sebald resounded with the new doctrines, and Osiander, under the protection of the city authorities, began to proselytize not only amongst the citizens, but among the number of public officials, from clerks to princes, who were brought to Nuremberg by the business of the empire. The Austrian administration of Wittenberg closed its churches to the reformers, but almost all the small imperial cities of Swabia favored the reformation. Eberlin of Gurnsburg was the most popular of the Swabian preachers, but Hall, Nordlingen, Rutlingen, Esslingen, and Heilbronn listened to the precepts of Brenz, Belicanus, Albert, Steifel, and Lachmann. Strasbourg and the southern cities of the Swabian circle were powerfully influenced by the example of their Swiss neighbors, and in 1524, the year in which Zwingli established control over Zurich, Busser and Capito effected a similar change in Strasbourg, which had already shown its sympathies by committing Murner's work to the flames, by protecting Matthew's well from the bishop, and by exercising the censorship over the press in a way that inflicted no hardship on the reformers. Elsewhere, in Upper Swabia, Zwingli's influence was strong. His friend Schwappeler 
who was to play an important part in the peasants' revolt, preached at Memmingen and Hummelberg in Ravensburg, while the disposition of Constance had been proved in 1521 by its refusal to publish the Edict of Worms. In Bavaria and Austria, the reformers were naturally less successful, and one was martyred at Rattenberg. But Jacob Strauss and Urbanus Regius preached in the valley of the Inn, Speratus at Salzburg and Vienna, and the traces of the reformed doctrines were found as far south as Tyrol. In the north, the reformers were not less active. Heinrich Moller of Zuphen, an Augustinian from the Netherlands, prevailed in Bremen against its archbishop. Hamburg and Lübeck, Stralsund and Greifswald, other cities of the Hanseatic League, followed its example. Bugenhagen, the historian of Pomerania, was also its evangelist. Königsberg became Lutheran under the auspices of Bishop Poland of Samland, and beyond the limits of the empire, the new doctrine spread to the German colonies at Danzig and Dorpat, Riga and Reval. Hermann Tast labored in Schwelwig, Jurien von der Dare, Georges Aportamus, in East Friesland, and smaller towns in Mecklenburg, Oldenburg, Lüneburg felt the impulse. Magdeburg and Breslau were in close communication with Wittenberg, and at Breslau, the object at which the reforming cities were aiming was first achieved when the city council claimed control over religious instruction on the ground that it built and maintained ecclesiastical edifices. In many cities, the result of the struggle between the old faith and the new was indecisive. At Ulm, for instance, the council determined to maintain a religious neutrality. Elsewhere, the Catholic clergy retained control of the churches, while Lutheran divines preached to large audiences in the open air. At first sight, it may seem strange that an anti-ecclesiastical movement should have been led by ecclesiastics, but the greatest enemies of a class or order generally come from within it. The most successful leaders of democratic revolutions have usually been aristocrats, and the overthrow of churches has often been the work of churchmen. So prominent were members of Luther's own order in the agitation against religious orders that the whole thing was thought at first to be only a squabble between Augustinians and Dominicans, like many others which had already broken out and been suppressed. The movement had been hatched in an Augustinian monastery at Wittenberg, and the first to imitate the Wittenberg monks were their Augustinian brethren at Erfurt. In 1522, a chapter of the order declared monastic vows to be no longer binding, and a few months later its vicar abandoned his dignity and took a wife. The Augustinians of Eilesben, Magdeburg, Gotha, and Nuremberg soon followed the example of those of Wittenberg and Erfurt, and left their cloisters to become evangelical preachers, or to adopt some secular trade. Two members of the order were the pioneers of Lutheranism in the Netherlands, and two others were there its proto-martyrs. The German Augustinians, in fact, adopted Luther's cause as a body. No other order followed their example but that of St. Francis, 
produced at least as many leaders of reform. From Franciscan cloisters came Myconius, the reformer of Weimar, who in after years traveled to England in the vain hope of strengthening the Anglican Church in the Lutheran faith. John Eberlin of Gornsburg and Henry of Kettenbach, who worked together at Ulm. Stephen Kempen, the evangelist of Hamburg. John Breismann, the reformer of Kutbus. Gabriel Zwilling, the agitator of Wittenberg. And Conrad Pelikan, who translated the Talmud into Latin and impressed with his learning the English reformers. Wittgrift and Jewel, Bratfort and Latimer. From among the Dominicans there arose Martin Busser, a notable name in the history of the German, the Swiss, and the English reformations. The Brigittines produced Oeco Lampadius, whose name, like Busser's, was familiar on both sides of the English Channel. Otto Brunsfeld's was a Carthusian, and Ambrose Blerer a Benedictine. The Carmelite House at Augsburg was a Lutheran seminary and Buchenhagen, the apostle of northern Germany, had been rector of the Prémonstratensian school at Treptow. From the ranks of the secular priesthood, there came few reformers of eminence, a circumstance which shows that even in their worst days, the monastic orders attracted most of the promising youth. George von Polenz was the only bishop who openly espoused the Lutheran cause in its early years. Though the bishops of Basel and Breslau, Bamberg and Merzenburg were more or less friendly. The halting attitude of the Archbishop of Mainz was due partly to fear and partly to the design he cherished of following the example of Albrecht of Brandenburg and converting his clerical principality into a secular fief. But the movement, although led by churchmen, was not the work of the church or of any other organization. It was a well-nigh universal, spontaneous ebullition of lay and clerical discontent with the social, political, and moral condition of the established Catholic Church. There was no one to organize and to guide this volume of passion, for Luther, although the Maria's voice that ever spoke the German language, was vox et praetera nihil. He had none of the practical genius which characterized Calvin or Loyola, and the lack of statesmanlike direction caused the reforming impulse to break in vain against many of the Catholic strongholds in Germany. Where it succeeded, it owed its success mainly to the fact that its control fell into the hands of a middle-class laity, which had already learned to administer such comprehensive affairs as those of the Hanseatic League. This participation of the laity made the towns of the bulwark of the German Reformed faith, and the value of their cooperation was theologically expressed by the enunciation of the doctrine of the universal priesthood of man against the exclusive claims of the Church. Indeed, not only were all men priests, but women as well, so declared Matthew Zell, in grateful recognition of the effective aid which women occasionally rendered to the cause of reform. That cause had, until 1522, been identified with the attempt to remedy those national grievances against worldly priests, high-handed prelates, and a corrupt Italian papacy, which had been variously expressed in the list of gravamina, drawn up by the Diet of Worms, and in the furious diatribes of popular literature. 
but gradually and almost imperceptibly this campaign assumed a theological aspect luther and his colleagues began to seek a speculative basis for their practical propaganda and to trace the evil customs of the time to a polluted doctrinal source religion in that theological age consisted largely in beliefs and very slightly in conduct and the conversion of a movement for practical reform into a war of creeds was inevitable but it hindered the practical reformation and helped to destroy the national unity of germany there was scarcely a conservative who did not see and admit the need for purification of the church murnach and Echt, and most notably erasmus felt it as much as luther melanchthon and hutton and duke george of saxony and charles v as much as the elector frederick but there was a vast difference between such a recognition and the acknowledgment of luther's doctrine of the unfree will between the admission that the theory of good works has been grossly abused and the assertion that all good works were vain the division thus initiated was deep and permanent and whereas the practical aims of the reformation have commanded a universal assent in theory and an ever-widening assent in practice luther's theology commanded only a sectional allegiance even among reformers of his century and a decreasing allegiance in subsequent generations but luther in spite of his repudiation of scholastic theology never got rid of the results of his scholastic training he must have a complete and logical theory of the universe and he sought it in the works of the great father of the church on whose precepts luther's own order had been professedly founded st augustine's views on the impotence of the human will had been adopted by the church in preference to those of his antagonist pelagius but in practice their rigor had been mitigated by a host of beneficent dispensations invented to shield mankind from the inevitable effects of its helplessness in the face of original sin these medieval accretions luther swept away he accepted with all its appalling consequences the doctrine of predestination and of the thraldom of mankind to sin and he did not hesitate to make god directly responsible for the evil as well as the good existing in the world it is a singular phenomenon that a fervent belief in the impotence of the human will should have stimulated one of the most masterful wills which ever affected the destinies of mankind the evolution of this doctrine had been but one of the mental activities which occupied luther during his enforced seclusion at the castle of wartburg his abduction had been preconcerted between himself and his friends at the elector frederick's court on the eve of his departure from worms and the secret was so well kept that his followers commonly thought that he had been murdered by papal emissaries here in his solitude he was subjected to a repetition of those assaults of the devil which he had experienced in the augustinian cloister what assurance had he that he was right and the rest of the church was wrong but the faith that was in him saved him from his doubts of himself and hard work prevented him from becoming a visionary the news that archbishop albrecht of mainz was intent on a fresh recourse to indulgences provoked a remarkable illustration of luther's influence in spite of the efforts of well-wishers at the saxon court to keep him quiet he presented an ultimatum to the archbishop granting a respite of fourteen days within which albrecht might retract and escape the perils of the reformer's fulminations 
the primate of germany replied with an abject submission it was difficult to silence a man who wielded such an authority and commentaries on the psalms and the magnificat sermons on the gospels and the epistles for the year a book on confession and an elaborate treatise condemning the validity of monastic vows flowed with amazing rapidity from his pen more important was his translation of the new testament on which he was engaged during the greater part of his captivity the old error that versions of the scriptures in the vernacular tongues were almost unknown before the reformation has been often exposed but it is not so often pointed out that these earlier translations were based on the vulgate and thus reflected the misconceptions of the church against which the reformers protested it was almost as important that translations into the vernacular should be based on original texts as that there should be translations at all and from a critical point of view the chief merit of luther's vision is that he sought to embody in it the best results of greek and hebrew scholarship but its successes was due not so much to the soundness of its scholarship as to the literary form of the translation and luther's bible is as much a classic as the english authorized version if he did not create the neuhochdeutsch which grimm called the protestant dialect he first gave it extensive popular currency and the language of his version which was based on the saxon Sprache superseded alike the old Hochdeutsch and Plattdeutsch, which were then the prevalent German dialects. The first edition of the New Testament was issued in September 1522 and a second two months later. The whole Bible was completed in 1534, and in spite of the fact that a basal printer translated Luther's outlandish words into south german and that a plattdeutsch version was also published the victory of luther's dialect was soon assured luther's bible became the most effective weapon in the armory of the german reformers and to the infallibility of the church they and later protestants opposed the infallibility of holy scripture but this was a claim which luther himself never asserted for the bible and still less for his own translation his often quoted remark that the epistle of st james was an epistle of straw should not be separated from luther's own qualification that it was such only in comparison with the gospel of st john the pauline epistles and some other books of the new testament but his references to that epistle and to the epistle of the hebrews and the book of revelation show a very independent attitude towards the scriptures wherever the words of the canonical book seemed to conflict with those of christ he preferred the latter as an authority and further difficulties he left to individual interpretation let each man he writes hold to what his spirit yields him and he confessed that he could not reconcile himself to the book of revelation he was in fact supremely eclectic in respect to the scriptures and to the doctrines he deduced from them he gave the greatest weight to those books and to those passages which appealed most strongly to his own individuality while he neglected those which like st james epistle did not suit his doctrines but he could hardly refuse a like liberty to others and he was thus soon involved in a struggle with reformers who like himself started from the denial of the authority of the roman church but 
pressed further than he did in his own arguments on the freedom of the will and the weight attaching to scripture. End of section 18